I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack out and going, just a quick reminder that there are lots of ways you can support the pod. Remember, just by liking, subscribing and sharing it with your friends, that is invaluable as it gets the word out and our witterings can go far and wide. But if you're able to support us financially, that would be incredible because it helps us keep doing what we're doing. In the description to this episode, there are links to Patreon where you can support the podcast regularly and Ko-Fi where you can tip us for an episode that you like. But we've also got some merch. So if you head to shop.historyhackpod.com, You'll be able to see some incredible bits of merchandise featuring the incredible designs that Steve Smith does for every episode. We've got some totes on there, some mugs, and we've got more stuff coming all the time. So please do check that out. And if you are able to support us financially, that is incredible. Thank you so much. But even if it's just liking, sharing, and telling everyone we're incredible, that helps us too. So without further ado... Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War-ish air power podcast, Hedgehopping with me, Matt Bone. We've got a fantastic episode as always, and an even more fantastic guest who's going to tell us an incredible story today. Because of all the images of typhoons I've looked at, and there have been many, one has always stood out to me. It's the image of a pilot in the cockpit of a fighter recon typhoon. And that pilot smiling at the camera with the most infectious smile you've ever seen. That pilot was the then squadron leader, Karun Krishna Majudar, jumbo to his friends. If you're listening to this episode on the day of release, the 17th of February, it is the 77th anniversary of the hurricane accident in which he was killed. Jumbo's life and career with the pre-war Indian Air Force is one I've always been keen to explore. And I'm really excited because we've got Jagan Pilaraseti with us today to discuss it. Now, I asked him for a bit of a bio, so this is going to take a bit because the man knows his stuff. A self-confessed aviation nerd with a specific interest in Indian aviation history and the early days of the Indian Air Force and the RAF in India. Jagan authored three books, including one on the Westland Mapiti aircraft, which was the mainstay of the IAF and the RAF in India in the 30s. He's an honorary fellow of the Erswell Centre for Armed Forces Historical Research in India, and a member of Air Britain, the Organization for Aviation Enthusiasts. Amazingly, he's still got time to run two websites devoted to Indian aviation, baratrackshack.com, which has a significant section devoted to the IAF, and warbirds.in, which is devoted to vintage aircraft in India. And there's another website, which is the phenomenal rafcommands.com, which is a resource I dive into all the time. So all the intros are done. We can finally speak to him, Jagan. Thank you so much for joining. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, uh, Matt. Thank you for having me on your podcast. And uh, you you have selected a subject that is dear to uh, many of the, I would say, almost all Indian aviation historians, which is Jumbo Majumdar. 
So I'm delighted to be here to uh, discuss more in depth about this uh, this this marvelous gentleman, uh, who sort of set an ideal for uh, many Indians during the World War II. And uh, a lot is known, but again, there is still a lot more to explore. So I am delighted to be here to uh, have this discussion with you to talk about this this legend. Legend's the right word. I'm I'm really excited because, like we were chatting before, I know the highlights, but I really want to sort of with your help, explore this remarkable man's life because it takes in more than just the Second World War. And I think it's important to understand really the birth of the Indian Air Force and the Indians that were joining it at the time. So let's get cracking, really. And let's start with the IAF. So what were the origins of the IAF? So the IAF, as, it, as you know, the, the Indian Air Force, right from the 1800s till, in, till the early 1900s, the, the British government you know, operated a a military force within the Indian subcontinent. And they had a fairly large Indian army, which was co- uh, made up completely of uh, volunteers uh, recruited from different uh, areas of the country. And they they contributed significantly to the uh, First World War effort from, on the behalf of the Allies. And at, at, that time, at that time of the First World War, Indians were not eligible to hold commissions within the Indian Army that the India office had set up at that time. They could only hold positions, what we call Viceroy Commissioned Officers, which are not uh, really the equivalent of a King's Commission, uh, King's Commissioned Officer uh, role either. So at the end of the First World War, looking at the contributions that Indian volunteers had made towards the Allied victory, there was a popular demand among the Indian subjects of the empire that the uh, commissioned roles should be opened up for Indians as well. So it started with with the proposal that Indians should have, uh, you know, should be commissioned as officers equivalent to their British counterparts within the Indian Army. From there, the India, India, what they call it, the Indianization movement spread to the other branches. One of them was just as you had officers in the Indian in, in the Indian Army, there should be an equivalent Indian Air Force just like the RAF was operating in India at that time. The RAF first presence was in the early 1920s. They had been usually being uh, doing air policing and you know community uh, policing from the air, especially in the Northwest frontier area throughout the 20s and you know uh, uh, publicity displays throughout the country uh, along the way. So the demand came that just like the British had uh, uh, maintained different forces, there should be proper representation of Indians within the subcontinent as well. So as part of that, there was a skin committee that was established in the late uh, 1920s. And what the skin committee recommended was that the Royal Air Force recruit Indians as officers and as pilots to fly aircraft with the RAF. Now, here's a question. If somebody joins the RAF, they cannot demand and say, hey, I want to serve only within India. If you are served, if you're joining the RAF, you are signing up to serve throughout the world. And what the British wanted was, okay, we this demand will come up. We cannot take Indians out of India and ask them to fight wars overseas. So let's come up with a separate Indian Air Force that is limited to the defense of India. And we'll hire Indians only for that specific force. That's how the, the idea of the Indian Air Force was born. Now, there's, a, there's a, another side to it. By creating an Indian Air Force and having Indians limited only to that specific Indian Air Force, you avoid a situation where an Indian may rise to a senior position and start exercising powers of punishment over a British subject. 
that's a big no-no in the subcontinent. You can't have a common, what do you call, public, you know, a villager sees a British subject being ordered around by an Indian officer. That's very damaging to the prestige of the British government. So they kept the forces clearly distinguished and separate. That's why the Special Indian Air Force Act was formed. And that Indian Air Force Act allowed Indian uh, officers and airmen to be uh, recruited and trained. And to train them, RAF officers would be deputed from the RAF to uh, sort of uh, provide training, leadership, you know, mentor them, et cetera. So it, it's, it's progressive and still repressive all at the same time. Exactly. And, and I don't know if maybe I'm, I'm overstepping beyond the scope of our subject, but it was only around 1942 or 43 where somebody woke up in Britain and said, hey, these guys are fighting the war you know, shoulder to shoulder with us. Maybe we should give them, you know, some sort of powers of punishment on British airmen under, under their command. So there were a lot of correspondence between the India office and the air ministry saying, okay, we'll let them exercise command over uh, British ranks. You know, one funny, one funny thing is uh, in the early days, every Indian Air Force squadron had a British adjutant. Really? And and the reason for a British adjutant is the British British adjutant had the powers of punishment and discipline over the airmen deputed to the British airmen deputed to the IAF squad. So as you said, it was two steps forward, one step backward, but still progress nevertheless. Now, what has happened is in so the scheme committee submitted the recommendations in the late 1920s, and uh, starting 1931. Indians became eligible to apply for many of the uh, British uh, military uh, training institutions. So there was a national level uh, entrance exam where uh, young Indians fresh out of college would write the would write this competitive exam and get selected. They had the options of picking Sandhurst or Cranwell or Woolwich. And at that time, the prestige was always with the with the with the Indian Army. So Sandhurst and Woolwich were quite popular. And Cranwell was a new thing. Not not many people uh, opted for it because apart from the very first batch, which had like five, uh, uh, six officers uh, choose Cranwell, subsequent yearly exams failed to generate that, that amount of interest among people who applied for Cranwell. So the first batch, I believe, uh, came to RF Cranwell in 1931. That was uh, uh, five pilots and one, one, one officer was found to be too short. He was sent to the equipment branch. And Jumbo was in the third batch, meaning in the, you know, these, these exams were conducted every six months. So he was in the third tranche of officers that passed this particular exam and got selected and came to uh, the UK for training. So that's pretty much how the Indian Air Force was established and how the training intake was established to uh, build up this nucleus of the force. We're going to start sort of jumping back and forth here in a minute, but how how, how big are we talking about the, the Indian Air Force being sort of late 30s in the lead up to war? Uh, if I, the right word to use is, is it was a very tiny force. In fact, the, the, the British had about four to five squadrons stationed in India, and at a very minimum, they had three squadrons operating Army Cooperation aircraft. The, the original plan was to equip a squadron unit at least 20 officers. 20 pilots, and, you know, a significant chunk of airmen as well. But the intake was so slow and so uh, minimal that it took them nearly eight years to build up to a squadron strength. So the Indian Air Force, when it was 
started the for the flight the first squadron was number one squadron was raised on 1st april 1933 it was just one flight of four wapiti aircraft and it was just one flight with one uh, british squadron leader a flying officer a british flying officer uh, flying officer broad as his adjutant and these five uh, five pilots who graduated out of cranwell so it added a second flight after a couple of years and a third flight after another it was only up, it was only towards 1938 or so it was it, it had like three flights of four aircraft each till till the outbreak of the second world war there was only one unit that is number one squadron there were literally no uh, pilots in you know indians who were successfully uh, went through cranwell to equip more than one squadron but the outbreak of the second world war sort of accelerated the process it it led to the establishment of the you know the uh, indian air force volunteer reserve where they were able to take indians who had already held uh, civil uh, private pilot certificates who uh, gave them commissions straight away and started taking them to serve serve in the second world war so that started beefing up the strength of the air force and they raised the number 2 squadron was only raised in 1941 and subsequently it, it grew up to a, a force of about 10 squadrons by the end of uh, end of uh, world war 2 so compared to what the raf was the indian air force was quite small it's a very small force of 10 uh, squadrons operating aircraft but it wasn't just the aircraft component we are also talking about the logistics you know the, the the whole bunch of airmen joined up to provide support to the various raf maintenance units on the ground forward bases airfield construction battalion so the contribution was much more than just the folks who flew the fighter aircraft which was limited to 10 and if you look at it the raf had about about 100000 airmen in 1945 in addition to that 100000 you know the indian air force provided almost like 50 to 60000 uh, airmen to uh, to assess the the allied war effort so that that gives you a sort of an idea what what the air was so is that slow build up and then explosion with as most of these forces did and we're going to get you back to talk about what happens post war and that's another episode because that's equally fascinating because you know we get to talk about tempests and things like that then but let's let's get on to to Jumbo himself so wh- where was he where was he from who were his people what was his early life like so jumbo is essentially from an area of uh, india at that time you know the combined subcontinent of india pakistan bangladesh he 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 was from an area which we, which would have been called bengal today that area is now the indian state of west bengal and the country of bangladesh so he was essentially from a bengali family very distinguished bengali family he was born karan krishna majumdar uh, he was born in calcutta kolkata today uh, his father was uh, captain pk majumdar he was called priyo majumdar his mother, mother was janki he was her second son what is not really popularly known as jumbo had one elder brother uh, jay krishna majumdar and he went by the nickname shackles and and shackles was older to jumbo by believe by about 2 years and he also wrote the same entrance exam that jumbo did jumbo opted for the air force shackles went to the army so he went to sandhurst he he went to cranwell um and how jumbo got interested into aviation was that you know all his education was in the northeast in the in the east in darjeeling area he went to british schools um and and at the same time you know uh, they they also suffered 
through uh, the ravages of that time. You know, the like both Jumbo and Shackles both were hit by typhoid at a very young age. They had to go through these health problems. But his father joined the Indian Army as an officer. That's why he was called Captain P.K. Majumdar. But he ensured that they were, they were a well-off family. He ensured that they were taken care of, they recovered. And on one of the recovery vacations, Jumbo had uh, got in touch with an RAF veteran of an RAF veteran who was a friend of his cousin. And that's how that interest in the Air Force got initiated. He that's where he learned about aviation, aircraft. And he knew the RAF had operated. And when the opportunity came, when he learned that Indians were being accept, accepted into the uh, AAF for, for flying training, and he spoke with the family and appeared for the entrance exam. Prior to that, I think oh, his father had uh, some background in the army, and of course, it's, his brother was also trying to uh, join the army, and he became a KCIO. One another interesting fact was uh, I'll, I'll digress a little bit and speak about his uh, his elder brother Shackles. Even though he was an army officer, he was a cavalry officer. He came back to India, and he did he learned flying and became uh, a civil certificate holder. So both the brothers were flyers. Only thing is, one was in the air force, the other was in the cavalry, but he held a uh, civil civil certificate. So Shackles went full posh. Not only did he join the army, go to Santos, he went cavalry. He, yes, and then there's a there's a there's a tragedy behind the story of these two brothers. We'll we'll touch upon that a little bit later. Okay, so he's a young man. He, he takes the entrance exam. So that's uh, 1931, Brett. Now, isn't it? So I guess the question really is: Do we know much about his time at Cranwell? I would guess so, that's quite a culture shock, <laughs> going from Kolkata to to the Midlands. Well, I, I did mention, right, that uh, he came from a family which was decently well-off. His father had sufficient assets to pay for and fund fund the expenses going to Cranwell. I mean, the, the parents had to still pay for all the expenses. I mean, they did have sponsors and et cetera, but the primary expenses were still had to be paid uh, by the parents. That means that the family had to be very well-off and connected to start off with. Uh, his sister was already in the UK. So it, it wasn't much of a culture shock for Jumbo because he always had his sister to, you know, go and live with her, you know, with his sister and brother-in-law. And 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 these people had sufficient interaction with the with the British community within India that I don't think it was much of a culture shock. The weather might have been. And it is written in, in a lot of other uh, uh, literature that these, these cadets were pretty much kept isolated in Cranwell, pretty much focused into the training that they, they had. They had very little exposure and whatever little time they had, they would go visit their Indian contacts and friends and relatives where possible. In case of Jumbo, he was not the only Indian cadet. He was in a batch of three. The other two were Narendra and Daljit Singh. Daljit Singh had to leave the Air Force within two years after coming back to India. So it was only Narendra and uh, Jumbo who carried on for, for, for some time. And of course, uh, Narendra served till up to 1951 when he died in a, another air crash. And when these three cadets came, they were already five from the senior batch and another one uh, from the second batch training. So there were about 10, 10 Indian cadets training at Cranwell. So there was sufficient presence there for him to get used to it. And Cranwell, they followed the exact same uh, training pattern that the RAF entrance, uh, entrance did. And then whatever... You know, the way they were given instructors, the aircraft that they trained in was exactly how the uh, RF trainees uh, were provided as well. It was a two-year uh, syllabus, and at the end of two years, uh, they were sent to Old old Sarum for uh, Army Cooperation training, because at that time, most of the aircraft were Army Cooperation 
And the Westland Wapiti was the mainstay which these folks are trained on. So just, just in case people aren't aware, what was Army Cooperation? So our Army Cooperation is essentially assist the land forces in their, in their operations. So in the context of India, most of the Army Cooperation sub, uh, sorties were flown in the Northwest Frontier province where the British were in the in a, what do you call, a perennial fight with the tribesmen of the Northwest Frontier province, which was going on till recently with the Americans as well, as you know. And it was just keeping the uh, the belligerent tribes of the Northwest Frontier at play, policing them through the air, policing them through uh, by sending army columns on the ground. Uh, what would happen is when the Indian army would send expeditions out or, you know, along with the British regiments, they would get attacked, they would get ambushed by the tribesmen. The aircraft were responsible by going ahead, doing recce, finding out if there were ambushes, and they had to communicate with all the moving columns. And this communication was essentially done by light signals through uh, you know cloth panels on the ground, by picking up messages through hooks. That is all what army cooperation was. It was working very closely with your army counterparts, communicating with them. They didn't have radios. They didn't have radios like we have today or even during the Second World War. It was all signals and cloth signals, flags, and uh, messages being picked up by low-flying aircraft. Once in a while, uh, if, if a particular post, far-out post, got into trouble, the RAF was called to uh, provide uh, suppressive uh, firepower, and that would be done by dropping small bombs and by firing the front and the rear guns. There was always a rear gunner with a Lewis gun uh, sitting in the back. They would provide that supporting firepower against the tribesmen. There's one aspect of it, which people may not like today, it is what is called the proscription rates. If a particular tribe is too belligerent, being become too much of a nuisance, you try to punish them by going and setting fire to their to their villages. So, if you wanted to punish a particular tribe or a particular uh, section, the, the RAF would fly aircraft. They would they would do it in a gentlemanly way. They would drop pamphlets saying, "Hey, get out of this village. We are coming at so and so time." to burn your village town. But that happened. So that was also part of army cooperation. What we today, we call prescription sorties. It's a very <laughs> specific use of force, isn't it? Especially in the Northwest frontier that it, it, I can remember reading it. it was one of the reasons the RAF pitched so much for it. It was, like, it was a cheap way of showing how they could project force and keep themselves going during times of peace. Yep, exactly. Uh, it's, and, and I believe the, the, the budget for operating the RAF in India used to come from the India office. The India office used to pay for the expense <laughs> of operating this aircraft. And that's what you need to police the empire, huh? keep, keep the natives at bay. So that, that is, as you are right, it, it is an effective, cost-effective way of uh, securing the frontier. What were they flying at this point? So... By the time Jumbo came back, the primary aircraft was a Westland Wapiti. Mm -hmm. Then the Westland Wapiti was, uh, I think it entered service in the Indian subcontinent in around 1931. And when the uh, IAF IS squadron was stood up in 1933, at that time, I there were three, three RAF squadrons and, and the IAF squadron that was coming up. That was the primary aircraft. It wasn't until 1936 or so you had a slightly modern aircraft like the Hawker Ardex and the Hawker Heart that came into the picture. But the Wapiti was a mainstay for, for the entire 1930s for the RF uh, units. 
So we're talking about big, rugged biplanes, basically. The the Viper was a giant of an aircraft. I mean, if you compare it with the Gloucester Gladiator or the uh, you know, the Harker Hart, the Viper was quite quite huge. I had the privilege of speaking to a couple of World War II veterans who had flown the Viper, and one of them said it. It's also a very easy aircraft to fly. You take off at 100 miles per hour, you fly it at 100 miles per hour, you land it at 100 miles. <laughs> that was brilliant. So everything changes in 1939, and it's quite a year for Jump, isn't it? Because it's not just that break of war for him. He's, he's got big personal things going on as well, hasn't he? Yeah, and, and you know, by 1939, as, as the war clouds are brewing, he's, he's an officer with about four, five years of service. As with, with you know, young men who are eligible bachelors, his family wanted him to get married. And you know, in India, it's always the arranged marriage concept. So his parents identified a, an educated girl and you know, introduced him to her. And so in just about a month after World War II breaks out in Europe, Jumbo had to go to uh, you know, uh, his own marriage. He married uh, Pramola, Pramola Das. And uh, that happened in November 1939. So, and, and the war breaks out, and you know you you have to now start a family. So I, I would say, yeah, that that was probably a, a quite busy time for uh, Jumbo. And what was also happening is by now he has picked up his rank. He's become a flying officer. He's on on path to become a flight lieutenant. And almost as soon as uh, same day that the war broke out, the number one squadron. Indian Air Force became the first unit to be commanded by an Indian. Till that point in time, there were British officers who were the COs, and Indians were still junior. They were flight commanders, they were adjutants, they were uh, you know younger pilots, but no one actually took over command. So just the month before, uh, Jumbo's senior, uh, Subrata Mukherjee, he became the first Indian commanding officer of number one squadron. So that was a milestone. So it, it was a quite hectic time for the unit at that time. And I and I mentioned that because Jumbo would follow Subroto as the second Indian commanding officer of the squadron. So even though he had like four to five other senior officers, he was at the right place at the right time to take over command when the first command the first CEO sort of graduated out of the seniority and went away. So he had the distinction of being the second CEO, Indian CEO of the of the unit. So he's he's a respected, experienced officer. So it's it's not just the case of, of him being in the right place, but he's a marked man on his way up, really. He, he is, and and to be fair, because of the selection process that was put in place, almost everyone who trained at Cranwell and came to the squadron had that kind of a reputation. I mean, these guys were like real professionals. They flew extensively in the Northwest Frontier Province. In, into the years leading up to the uh, World War II, some flights would be detached to the Northwest Frontier province and they would be attached to an RAF squadron. They would operate as part of an extra flight of the RAF squadron, get, gain the experience required for operations. So in that context, almost everyone who came out of Cranwell carried that kind of experience. But Jumbo was an impressive character. This guy was like six foot tall. If you look, at, look up photographs, he's not a diminutive person. He's, he and his brother were both giants. And that actually... Uh, goes against the impression that some some folks may have about people from Kolkata. They'll resume them to be short, but these guys are really tall. 
So the very impressive uh, personalities, and they were looked at as born leaders. There's no no two ways about it. So what what's happening in India? So we've got, you know, realistically, to my uneducated mind, two years of not a lot happening until the Japanese decide to make their move. I'm assuming that's incorrect because that's just a very sort of stereotypical bit of knowledge I need to have cleared up. <laughs> Yeah, so what was happening is, of course, the war was primarily focused in Europe. There was a freedom movement going on within India where Indians wanted self-governance. They want to be their own rulers, in a sense, set up their own government, and that that freedom movement was going on. So there was a there was a conflict that many of these officers went to, you know, went through. Like in in a way, they were representing uh, India, but at the same time, they are also serving uh, a an alien protocol. <laughs> ruling force, meaning. So I'm fairly sure that people like Jumbo and their counterparts, they went through this, uh, a lot of soul searching and conflict, self-conflict as to what exactly their role was. But a lot of times the leaders who were leading the freedom movement had communications with this, with, with, the, with the officers by telling them saying, we do not want you to get involved in politics into, into the freedom movement. When tomorrow, when, when the British do give us independence, you would need experienced people to run the armed forces. You would need experienced people to run the government. So there were there were some communication going on from the leaders to the officers. And so, so a lot of these officers decided that their role was to you know, be part of the Indian Army or the Indian Air Force, the armed forces, and learn whatever they can and take part in the war. Now, even though there was no war happening in the environs of the Indian subcontinent, the India office did start sending Indian troops over to North Africa. They took part in the Eritrean campaign and the African campaign. So that was going on. And at the same time, because the Indian Air Force was expanding, they did send as a token contribution, they did send about 24 pilots to UK in 1940 to take part in the Battle of Britain. They, they arrived too late to take part in the Battle of Britain. They were rookie pilots. By the time they took training, you know, the rubavs were going on in 1941 in over Europe. So that token contribution was sent over there, but a bulk of the Indian Air Force, people who were training, etc., were still, you know, operating in the Northwest Frontier Province. Till the war clouds started rumbling towards end of December. And that's when, you know, all hell breaks loose as we'll talk about what happened next. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's the most succinct way of putting it, all hell breaking loose, because it's 
it's a flood, isn't it? This race south the Japanese go on. What is the sort of reaction in India and how does the IAF move into the, the positions to try to assist the army as best they can? So when when the uh, when the war breaks out in the Far East, there were only three squadrons that have been raised at that point. Two of them were uh, number one, number two, number three. Number two and number three squadrons were still new. One was the only one that was quite senior. So somewhere around July 1941, the the British imported about about a hundred Westland Lysander aircraft from Africa to India. And these are not new aircraft. These are beaten up aircraft disposed of from the North African theater that I've seen the uh, top, you know, the dust and star, dust storms of Sahara. <laughs> those are the aircraft that were brought to India. And you wouldn't believe it, those are the most modern aircraft that were presented to the Indian subcontinent. <laughs> They've, not, they've got some well-worn Lysanders, but it's still a step up from the... It is still a, they did have a few uh, Bristol Blenheim bombers, but in terms of single-engine aircraft, the Lysanders were the most modern aircraft that were there in the, in the subcontinent at that time. And the first two units that re-equipped with the Lysander were uh, number 28 Squadron RAF and number 1 Squadron Indian Air Force. And both of them used to be co-located in the Northwest Frontier province. And when the front was heating up in December 1941, the British started, uh, the RAF started moving all the squadrons to the to the Burma front. And both 1 and 28 were earmarked to uh, to move to Burma. In fact, Burma had better uh, equipment than, some of the RAF units in Burma had better equipment than the RAF units in India. We had the 67 squadron flying uh, Brewster Buffaloes, which was fairly modern, fairly powerful. So not a match against the uh, zero and uh, against the Japanese aircraft, but all that the RF could muster uh, were these Lysanders. Somewhere in the middle of January, where where the modern aircraft like the Hurricanes etc. were started being carried from the Middle East, they would be over Persia, the Arabian Peninsula, and they would finally arrive in Karachi and be flown all across the subcontinent, and they were they formed some of the fighter force towards the beginning of February. And that's how, that's how the force was built up. As far as Majumdar is concerned, you know, he, he was given orders to move his squadron to the uh, Burma front. And that happened uh, in the towards the last week of January, where they flew uh, from the northwest all the way to Burma. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to History Hacks Hedgehopping. And this is where... Yeah. The sort of daring do begins, really, isn't it? Because they they start having to to make, I don't want to say make do and men because it's it's not really that, but they are making the Lysander do a lot of things that the Lysander wasn't intended to do. Yes, I am jumping ahead a little bit, but it shows the sort of tactical flexibility that they have to to make the most of what they've got. The the the, the Lysander was an army cooperation aircraft. It was not a combat aircraft. It was not supposed to uh, undertake offensive operations. As soon as as soon as both the squadrons, both 28 RAF and 1 IAF, arrived at arrived at Tongo in Burma, on the very first night they were, that airfield was attacked by the Japanese, and it was the credit is normally given to Jumbo because even though you had an RAF unit and an IAF unit, the RAF unit was fully engrossed in doing army cooperation duties, ferrying senior officers, through, uh, you know, carrying signals, carrying recce missions, but Jumbo sort of stepped out of you know, the what you call his uh, allotted roles and said, 
we were attacked by the Japanese. We, based on intelligence, we know where the aircraft came from. So he took the decision to equip the Lysander with, uh, you know, arm the Lysander with bombs. And he planned a single aircraft bombing mission uh, against a airfield, the Japanese airfield that was believed to exist in uh, what Mehong Song. Now he was escorted by two of the buffaloes uh, belonging to 67 Squadron. I mean, I, I would I would love to know how that idea came about, who approved it. There must have been some discussion that happened that we don't know. But what we know for sure is there was a single aircraft bombing mission that Jumbo flew alone, and he was escorted by two Kiwis, you know, in in their buffaloes. And he located the airfield, dropped the two bombs, and you know, safely came back. In terms of blunting the Japanese effort, it was probably nothing. But it was great for the morale of whoever was there at uh, Tonga. And once that was done, the floodgates opened. So now everybody wanted, everybody flying a Lysander wanted to take part in offensive ops. That became the model for the uh, Lysander operations, whether it was one or 28 squadron, to carry bombs and carry out offensive missions, you know, over the subsequent weeks. So they, both the squadrons did a lot of uh, uh, offensive operations uh, against small main docks, Sitang River, or, you know, Japanese positions at the, uh, uh, at the Sitang Bridge, things like that. And the RF had to throw in every aircraft that they had. If any, anything could carry a bullet or a bomb, they were, you know, they were open to using it. And that's how the Lysanders pretty much went into an offensive role during that period. And it's exactly 80 years as we sit here uh, and keep talking. Exactly 80 years ago, February 1942, where these guys were flying these missions against the Japanese. Did they have to fall back very much from the advance? I would guess they'd be quite forward from an army cooperation base. So they, they sort of split up the force. One went to Lashio. One force was at Mingaladon, which is the in Rangoon. But as the Japanese started advancing, the assets were pulled back. So one of the first things that happened was the airmen, all the ground staff were sent by ship from Rangoon to Calcutta by ship. And all the aircraft were slowly flown back to Akyab and further back. The operation sort of winded down in the first week of March. And the entire number one squadron sort of made their way back to the Indian subcontinent in bits and pieces. Jumbo himself, Jumbo and a couple of his uh, uh, senior officers himself, they left their Lysanders to the Burma Volunteer Air Force. And they were flown back in one of the U.S. Air Force uh, B-17s that, that just about arrived, arrived in Burma at that time. It's a remarkable few months worth of combat operations, high stress, and he's he's awarded his first DFC for it. Yes, and because of the uh, his contributions in the months of February and March, Jumbo was awarded the uh, the Distinguished Flying Cross, and that was the first DFC awarded to an Indian in, on the Burma front. He and another another uh, another officer, Aspi Engineer, both were awarded DFC at the same time. Aspi was awarded for operations in the Northwest Frontier, but Jumbo's was the first DFC awarded for the Burma Front. And the only one that was given to number one squadron, and it, it would be at least three years before, you know, subsequent uh, DFCs were given to officers of the AF. So that way, that, that's when Jumbo's name becomes a household name across India. As the first officer to be decorated for the Burma Front by the RAF, you know, the DFC, and he becomes... He, he, he becomes a quite a popular figure, followed by everybody. And that, that sort of also 
cuts down his options. I mean, once you have commanded the only squadron, the senior most squadron, where do you go? You got to go to a staff job. You got to go to air headquarters someplace. So that sort of also cuts down what he could do over the subsequent years. We'll talk about that. We've not asked, we might not know the answer to this one, and it's not on my list of questions for you. How did he get the nickname Jumbo? Is it because he was, he was a, a big chap? And by that, we mean tall as opposed to large, like my good That's self. a good question, but I think the nickname was given by his family. I, I, I don't know how his elder brother got the nickname Shackles. I think Shackles and Jumbo were something that the family came up with, and that stuck with them. But that's a very good question. So it wasn't an unfortunate name that a lot of RAF pilots gave to pilots from elsewhere in the world. I can think of a few of the uh, West Indian pilots who had some. I, I don't think so. Pilots. I don't think so. I think this this was. I mean, if, you know, this was a. He had this name prior to joining the Air Force. Is what is is, and of course he carried that as his call sign going into the Air Force. So he's done about as much as he can do by, I guess, what, middle of 1942. What, what's, what's his decision path then? Because he said he could, he could go to fly a desk, quite straightforward, get out of the action. What, what's his decisions after that? So what, what, what actually happened is when he came in, when the squadron came back from the Burma front, the Mohan squadron was re-equipped with, uh, the, with the Hawker Hurricane. So all the pirates were trained, sent to Peshawar to train uh, with the OTU, fighter OTU on the hurricane. Now, Jumbo was fairly senior at that time. If you look at the seniority, he was probably the fourth fourth or the fifth senior most officer with the IAF at that time. And naturally, more and more uh, officers were coming up to assume commands of the squadron. So he had to go to uh, to, a, to another posting. And the Indian Air Force was not so big that it had wings. You know, it was operating uh, with uh, multiple wings or anything like that. So... Ultimately, what happened is Jumbo was recruited, was sent to air headquarters in Delhi, and uh, he spent some time with the directorate of recruiting because he was a popular figure. They wanted to use him as a role model. Then he was given the role of staffing the Inspectorate General Directorate. I don't know if that was a, that was the right time, but the Inspectorate General uh, Department would go to different units within within the subcontinent and assess the sort of audit the unit, how they are in terms of training standards, et cetera. So this inspector general, general office was formed only for the AF. So only the AF units were sort of assessed and Jumbo was one of the assessing officers. He would go to individual units, see their readiness, you know, validate their training. So it was pretty much a dust job. Uh, and uh, he was there for a, a couple of years and during this time, his family also grew. Like, uh, you know, I, we may, I mentioned he got married in early uh, 1939. So they were blessed with a couple of children, a daughter, and a son. So sometime around 1940, end of 1943, Jumbo got restless. By that time, he was a wing commander, a Cranwell graduate wing commander. You are literally not going to get back into uh, flying fighters on the front line ever again. Uh, you'll probably become a station commander, commanding an air base, or a bomber wing, but India was too small to have any, any any kind of large bomber or fighter wings, at least in the Indian Air Force. So his his options were limited in terms of uh, combat or flying. So towards the end of 1943, he got restless, and uh, he essentially asked his superiors, saying that he wanted to go fly in the European theater. 
by that time you know the european theater was a, was quite full of action and if you compare the action that was happening in india was probably 5 to 10% of what was happening in europe in terms of the sorties in terms of the aircraft involved casualties so india was still was still a safer posting but he jumbo really wanted to uh, fly in the european theater and uh, just not sit sit on his uh, behind in some desk job in new delhi and spend the rest of the war there so for that he was a wing commander he had to he was an acting wing commander so the the air headquarters again staffed by senior rf officers they respected uh, what jumbo uh, asked for and did and they came up with a with a plan to send him to europe and that's how you you find jumbo in the united kingdom somewhere in around march or april uh getting trained on the latest high performance fighters that are being flown in the european theater and he goes into you know this might surprise people but the 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 arm of flying in northeast europe i find most fascinating which is technical reconnaissance technical reconnaissance now there's a story behind that too so okay and 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 you know the surprising thing is for such a senior officer as jumbo he had never flown a hawker hurricane or a spitfire till 1944 really yes because he, he, thought he would have pulled rank on that and going i'm having a go in that yeah so once he was flying the lysander and once he came back before the squadron equipped to the hawker hurricane he was posted to a test job so he never had the opportunity to convert to a hurricane and you know fly one of the faster monoplane fighters so he may have caught some exposure here and there but operationally never trained he was never operationally declared as uh, operational on on this high performance fighters of the european theater till about April 1944, when he arrived in UK and went to one of the fighter rotations. That's where he flew Hurricanes first. Then he flew Mustangs. And the reason he was sent to a tactical reconnaissance squadron was that you would have heard about 268 Squadron, which was a specialist squadron for carrying out uh, these recce missions. The CEO of that squadron was uh, Squadron Leader A.S. Mann. And A.S. Mann was the flight commander of 28 Squadron in Burma. when jumbo was a ceo of number 1 squadron so somewhere the you know the wheels wheels of bureaucracy churned and they said hey let's let's tag jumbo with his old friend who flew with him in burma and they they sent him to 26 squadron and 26 squadron man was a squadron leader and jumbo was there as a squadron leader attached to the squad so there's this very nice uh, group photograph of uh, 268 squadron in the european theater where you have two squadron leaders in a group photo jumbo on one side one one being the actual ceo of that squadron so he arrived uh, i think just 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 after d day and immediately within the subsequent week he started flying uh, missions in the mustang that was being operated the type that was being operated by 268 and uh, he did his full tour of ops lot of you know, the fellas gap uh, ricky and there are a couple of anecdotes where the missions that he was leading in were attacked by the luftwaffe that he was engaged in combat of course he, he didn't have any opportunity to score any kills but as a as a recce pilot their job was to get the films and get out of there not engage in heroics so he did his full tour of operations with that squadron and that's where that iconic photograph comes from 268 started reequipping with typhoons 
and you know and gumbo was trained on one of the typhoons and you know flew the typhoon for uh, for a few weeks as well the uh, yeah the, the the mustang one and two the allison engine one's great tactical reconnaissance aircraft the fr typhoon not so much shaking around as much as it was the pictures got better as time went on ek427 if anyone wants to look up one of jumbo's typhoons there you go there's a plane spotter one I, I just find that role fascinating because they're slightly armed photo recon aircraft who are also tasked with you know if there's a target of opportunity have a go but in that sort of airspace with that amount of flak the images that they're bringing back um, especially with those oblique cameras just behind the the seats on the on the mustangs as well that they're just when you look at them now they're extraordinary photographs and to get those to the commanders as quickly as possible was was vital and and jumbo's in the thick of it yes and it was that contribution that that was again recognized uh, when he was when the bar for his uh, distinguished flying cross was gazetted you know he was given a second award in the form of the bar and he remains the only indian indian air force pilot to ever have a dfc and bar so and that was a result of his contribution in the european theater i've just looked up on your website jumbo's citations and the second one is if you ever read citations in the Gazette, by 19, late 44, 45, they get shorter just because there's a lot of them. But his is, is actually quite long. I'll, I'll read it out because it's, it's brilliant. This officer has completed many tactical reconnaissance and photographic sorties. His keenness for operational work and his skill on difficult and dangerous missions has always been outstanding. Before the advance northwards in France, he completed exceptionally valuable photographic reconnaissance of the sand bridges in the face of heavy ground defences. He has also participated in long tactical reconnaissance on which he was several times intercepted by superior formations of enemy aircraft. His skill and courage have been outstanding. Remarkable tribute to Jumbo's skill. And you know the sad part of it? You look, you look at the date that the award was gazetted. Mm. 23rd January 1945. He did not live to receive the bar to the DFC. He died like two weeks later. Now I should, I'll probably take a slight diversion here and speak about a personal tragedy that Jumbo had in his life. Mm-hmm. He spoke about his elder brother Shackles. Right before he started off for Europe, his brother died in, his, in an aircraft crash. Oh, no. You know, that sort of weighed on him, but again, he, he didn't let that derail his plans. And, and when you realize ultimately when Jumbo also dies in, 19, in 1945, both the sons lost their lives in the Second World War. You know, that family lost both the brothers. It's really tragic from that, from that point of view. So when does he return to India and what role is he given on, upon his return? So after after completing his tour towards Christmas of 1944 is when he arrives in India. He spends his Christmas with his family, and again, you know, by now he's he's a he's, he's a bona he's a bona fide war hero, Burma theater, Europe European theater, DFC and Ba. So the higher command decided to use him for publicity purposes. In fact, they tasked him with forming an IAF, Indian Air Force, display flight to form a flight that would go around the country, perform in air shows, perform displays, aerobatic routines, sort of 
motivate and encourage uh, younger Indians to come and volunteer for the Indian Air Force. So he arrives in he arrives in Peshawar towards the end of 1944 to raise this particular uh, Indian Air Force display. He had to borrow pilots and aircraft from other squadrons like number six squadron, number three squadron, and form this nucleus of the display flight. And right from the word get go, as they call it, it was something inauspicious start for the display flight. The first thing that happens is one of Jumbo's close friends, uh, squadron leader Prithpal Singh, who was actually Jumbo's uh, flight commander during the first Burma campaign. Both Jumbo and Prithpal go up to do some mock air combat over Peshawar. This was towards the end of uh, uh, December. For whatever reasons which we don't know, Prithpal flies into the ground. And he was one of those rare Cranwell trained, who was one of the last Cranwell trained officers. That was shocking to Jumbo because he was, they were engaging in mock combat and there's this talk that they must have been really been taking risks to get behind each other, whatever it might be, must be taking unnecessary risk, whatever it might have been. But there's no denying the fact that it was in a mock air combat that Prithpal was lost. So that was the first setback. The, the display flight was formed within a few days and I, right on the inaugural, one of the inaugural uh, days, I forget the date, but it was in January 1945, two of the pilots collide and die of the display flight. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a auspicious start as they said. So still with, with those setbacks, the display flight gets going, they started... Uh, uh, you know, they start uh, planning, moving around different cities in India, performing. So they had Hawker Hurricanes. They had a couple of Tiger Moths, a couple of corner trainers. The trainers were used to give joy rides to civilians, and the Hurricanes were used for aerobatic displays. And that's how, like, you know, uh, Jumbo finds himself as the CEO of the display flight. And in February, he ends up coming to uh, Lahore. To, uh, to perform during the uh, sports day for a couple of training establishments there. That's the stage as to what was happening after he came back from, from Europe. It's so tragic that these pilots who you would, you would think go put on an air show for the civilians to, to drum up support would be a, a reasonably safe job, but he's already lost three pilots before they've even started getting getting going yeah, but that, that was a story of the aviation in second world war i mean if you look at the rf casualties two-thirds are probably in training uh, I, I mean, i'm talking about the fighter command uh, at least half to two-thirds would have been on non-operational reasons very few i mean only a small percentage would have been in actual air combat or due to enemy action same was the situation in burma the non-operational casualties were tremendous to and mounting up to like 70 to 80 percent. But again, you know, that's how that's how the war went. So on February 17th, what happens on the, on 17th again, uh, exactly eight years today, would be that Jumbo is called, uh, he finds himself in Lahore. And February 17th was also the birthday of his, his younger son. He had an older daughter and it was his son's birthday. And he tells his son, I have this display flight I'll, I'll come to your birthday party in the evening. I've got a gift for you and all. And he goes for uh, the for the display flight. It happened roughly around 4 p.m. or 4.15 p.m. or so. In fact, there is a 
sports program that was published that lists out this is where the display is going to happen. And as for the documents or the uh, accident card that exists, Jumbo started doing slow rolls uh, as part of the display. He started doing uh, slow rolls in the hurricane. And he probably did one roll too many. I think he did a third roll in which he lost the airspeed and the aircraft stalled and went into a irrecoverable spin. And that's how his life was cut short. Such an experienced flyer, he had more than 2,000 hours at that, by that time. Battle, you know, battle-hardy veteran would make a, would make a mistake and uh, lose his life. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the sad part of it. It makes me think a little bit of the F for Freddy mosquito crash in Calgary. Two very experienced pilots just doing a little bit too much and it ending, ending tragic, very tragic. And, and, and we have seen this happen throughout the war. I mean, the first, first RAF is Cobber Kane, mm. you know, came back from France, died doing, doing slow rolls, beating up his own airfield. The American um, ace in the RAF, Lance Wade, same thing. You know, he was beating up his airfield in his Spitfire. These are, these are experienced ace, ace pilots, but you know, probably due to an element of overconfidence or not being in the right place, right time, had to pay with their lives. So how old is Jumbo when he was killed? Um, when he died, you know, he was born in uh, 1913. So he was 32 years uh, of age. If he hadn't died, I mean, he would have been one of the senior most officers for the Indian Air Force post-independence. He had, he would have, he would have probably went on to become the air chief, or you know, so, or held the held the senior most spots in the AF. So, yeah, very very bright career, cut pretty very short, and he was he was very respected as a combat leader. He's probably only one or two Indian pilots ever who flew operations in Europe after 1944, after D-Day. Jumbo was the only IF officer I know. I mean, there are a few Indians within the RAF who may have flown, but Jumbo is the only uh, Indian Air Force commissioned officer who went from India to take part and uh, gained that experience. We started this when we were talking about him, saying about how well-known he is now. His legacy has endured and I guess he's very much held in high esteem with the modern IAF. How is he remembered today in India? So there are only three to four names that are that have achieved this legendary status. One is uh, Subrata Mukherjee, the first air chief, who was also the the senior most, uh, the first ever Cranwell, uh, senior most Cranwell graduate. That that is one. Then you have Air Commodore Mehar Singh, again another Cranwell graduate from Second World War. Marshal Arjun Singh. And Jumbo Majandar. These four names are the only names that that are considered as legends. And and everybody in the Air Force, in the in the Indian Air Force today, they are aware of who these people are, who these who these personalities are. There used to be a Jumbo Majandar trophy that used to be awarded at the uh, IAF Flying College in the, throughout the 60s and 70s. And the, in recent years, I don't know if you heard about the story about Jumbo's medals. So Jumbo had had a, as I said, he had he did have children, a daughter and a son. And in fact, in recent, in 2015 or so, his son who used to, who has migrated to the UK, decided to, you know, put up the medals for sale. And the uh, Indian Air Force spent the money to acquire the medals from him. And now they are in display 
at air headquarters in new delhi so the indian air force does value the legacy of jumbo majumdar so much that it it took an unprecedented uh, unprecedented uh, decision to spend its own money in a private business matter to acquire matter that never happens Mm. and i and I, i think that was an incredible thing that the air force had done to preserve jumbo's legacy and i think that's a perfect way to to start wrapping up jagan that has been fantastic we like i said we're we're going to have you back to talk about the the indian air force more more broadly especially post war independence and beyond if only because it means we get to talk about tempest for a bit which i know we both quite like talking about thank you very much for having me matt this topic is something very close to my heart Chambo Majumdar, and you couldn't have picked a better topic to uh, kick off this series about Indian aviators than Chambo. So I'm very glad, privileged to be part of your podcast and share my thoughts about Chambo uh, on this podcast. Thank you very much. It's been an awesome pleasure. Thank you so much. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book. The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack. Or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. And here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.